Spectrum's next. Welcome to Spectrum, the science and technology show on KALX Berkeley, a bi-weekly 30-minute program bringing you interviews featuring Bay Area scientists and technologists, as well as a calendar of local events and news. Hi, my name is Brad Swift. I'm the host of today's show. Our interview is with Jason Juan, a third-year PhD student in the Carlson Lab which is part of the Environmental Science Policy and Management Department of the College of Natural Resources. Professor Stephanie Carlson directs the lab, and she is a fish ecologist. Jason is researching the effects of summertime stream drying on fish ecology in the John West Fork, a creek in Marin County. The John West Fork is a spawning grounds for two varieties of salmon. The summer of 2011 will mark the third year of his research on this stream. His research will continue for two and possibly three more years. This interview is pre-recorded and edited. Jason, welcome to Spectrum. Thanks for coming in. Thank you. I wanted to ask if you could uh, give us a brief overview of your research and add add in there how it's being funded. My research is looking at the effects of low summer flow on juvenile steelhead on the insect communities out in the stream, and on certain ecosystem processes, such as algal production and leaf decomposition. And it's currently being funded by, mostly by my, by my guiding professor, Stephanie Carlson. And I also have some funding from our department and the division within our department. We get a SPUM wildlife grant, uh, which helps fund the, the research. And also I'm currently on an NSF graduate research fellowship. Describe the the general area of the site that you chose. Sort of put it in context of where it is. So my study site, uh, the John West Fork, is in Point Reyes National Seashore, which is about an hour north of Berkeley in a national park, and it's surrounded by some state parks also. Can you explain the watershed and the area that you're working, how it all interrelates to the watershed? So I'm I'm working in the Lagunitas watershed. I'm working in a creek that is a tributary of a tributary of a creek to the Lagunitas uh, to Lagunitas Creek, and Lagunitas Creek flows into Tomales Bay in Point Reyes. The creek that I'm working in is a little different in that there are only two species of fish up there. Both are salmonids. There are steelhead and coho salmon. This is because it's it's thought that the creek went dry 
completely dry one year, and there's there was a culvert that was put in place, and other fish species weren't able to recolonize the creek, but salmonid adults can jump over the barrier, so they were able to recolonize the creek. And they're actually jumping through the culvert. Yeah, and and through this culvert and swimming up, swimming into the to John West Fork. And what's the drop on the culvert like? From from the the bottom lip to the bed of the it's, lower part of the creek, it's about four feet. Four, four feet. feet drop off. Yeah. So that's quite a leap for the salmon. Yeah. And so with this study, what is it that you're trying to learn that is not already known? So I'm basically trying to look at the effects of low flow, and my study is really looking at what the effects are at a really fine scale. So I'm tracking uh, juvenile steelhead growth, movement, and survival, and I'm tracking them on a weekly basis. So it's pretty fine-scale monitoring, which is something that hasn't really been been carried out before. And the low-flow period is when? Uh, the, low, the low flows start after the, the last rains, and as the, as the temperature gets warmer, the stream starts to dry, and it, it pretty much lasts throughout the summer until the first rains of the following year. Are you collaborating with other people on your project? Not directly with my lab mates on my project. Sometimes they might come out and help me, but for the most part, I've been working alone with uh, the help of some undergraduates. There are certain side projects that we collaborate on. Um, there's also a person who is uh, working with me from a from a different department. He's not really working on my project, but uh, something that's related to my project out at my field site. Mm-hmm. It, it helps both of you? Yeah, definitely. And um, is that going to have some bearing? Is is his work or her work going to have some impact on your results? It definitely is connected. It's connected to um, more at the temperature and looking at how stratification and pool, temperature stratification in pools might affect uh, fish behavior. So where, where they kind of hang out in, in the pools. So that's something that could definitely help us fold into your your report yeah exactly so in doing your research and working in the field as opposed to uh you're working in the field and the lab how much time do you spend in the field and in the lab um when i'm out during the summer uh during my field season it's a pretty big chunk of it about 80 to 85 percent is probably spent in the field and the remainder spent in the lab. Um, but once the summer is over and, and the field season is over, most of the time is spent in the lab, um, crunching data, um, processing samples, and stuff like that. You're listening to Spectrum. KALX Berkeley. Today we're talking with Jason Wan about his research into summertime stream drying and its effect on fish ecology. And so is there fish breeding going on in this part of the stream? I would assume that that's the reason they're up there. Yeah, so when the adults jump up into the stream, they breed typically during the 
the winter when the rains, they come back with the rains and they breed and the eggs hatch in spring and then I, I kind of track the juveniles once they get to a large enough size to be able to monitor them. So as you start to go up in the early spring, you're seeing lots of, of small fish. Yeah. And is so the fish that have spawned, are, have they left then or do some stay? Yeah, they, most of them have left. They're too large to stay in some of these pools, so most of them leave. And with, with the coho, they die right after they breed because uh, they just breed once and they die. But with the, with the steelhead, they're able to breed multiple times. And are you tracking at all that mortality of the coho that are coming up and breeding? No, but the park service is definitely keeping track of adult, adult spawners. They go up every winter and quantify the amount of uh, salmon reds, which are the nests that salmonids build. And they also try to keep track of how many fish, adult fish that they see. Talk about the insects and the fish in the same context of the frequency. So with with the insects, um, it's it's a pretty disturbing method to go and collect them. So we try not to collect them too frequently. We we collect them once at the beginning of the summer and again at at the end of the summer. So we don't want to disturb the habitat too much. It, we have to kind of dig in to the stream, and it just disrupts disrupts things a lot. So we try to keep the frequency down. And with the fish, um, we go out again. It's similar to, to the insects. It's We have to go and shock them, and which, as you can imagine, um, is quite stressful to the fish. So we shock them once in the begin, beginning of the summer, and we place pit tags into them, um, which allows us to monitor them across the summer without having to actually handle them. Also, while we... Um, capture them during the first event we we weigh them and measure them and then during the late season capture event we weigh them and measure them again and we're able to identify which the fish that were tagged we were able to determine their growth rates and their survival in addition we can monitor them using the pit tags we have a, a handheld antenna that we take out and we just place it over the stream, and we're able to find out where they're located, or and also if they're they're still alive. So that happens uh, pretty much once a week. So the pit tag is like a radio yeah, ID. It's a, yeah, it's an radio, RFID tag, RFID. Uh, similar to what is found in uh, for pets, the microchips that they use for pets. Mm-hmm. And then you can also measure the mortality with that as well, I guess. If you... yeah, so we go out and. We try to track their movement, and also, if we find a pit tag, we just kind of disturb the area around uh, around the tag lightly. And if if the tag isn't moving, then we kind of can surmise that there has been a mortality event that that occurred. Do you remove the fish that die, or no? It's pretty hard to find them because we don't track them every day. So so things happen within the week and sometimes we kind of look around for the tag but it's it's pretty hard to find the tag but if we do come across any fish we do we do take it back to the lab any dead fish yeah and they are often tagged or have they not some of them are just untagged we try to tag as many fish that we can capture at that are a certain size they have to be a certain size size um, 
So we do try to capture and tag every fish that is of a certain size. And but, within, but we do within miss that some. period of time that you can do the that you're doing the tagging because you try to limit that. Yeah. How long is that period? What do you do? Try to do it all in a week? Three to four days. The, the tagging the tagging takes about three to four days. The, the capture and tagging. But and what's that like in terms of a process? Is it, it is it you and a bunch of people doing it together? Yeah. Take a little group out. Yeah, we we actually took a group out um, and we actually stayed out there for for the three three or four days. We wanted to get an early start in the day and. It takes about an hour to get get out there each day, so we just decided to stay out there, and it's actually quite fun. Um, most most people really, everybody volunteers to do to do the fish capturing. They're like, "Oh yeah, I want to do that." It's something that the interns really enjoyed. So, is that time that you're in the creek? Are you actually standing in the creek? So I yeah, I actually get into the creek and I have a an electro fisher, and I move through the creek shocking the fish and there are a couple of netters beside me and they they scoop up any fish that have been shocked and we place them into a bucket and then from there we kind of um, weigh them and measure them after after all the fish have been captured for a certain pool so you do this pool by pool yeah exactly Listening to Spectrum on KALX Berkeley. Today we're talking with Jason Wan about his research into summertime stream drying and its effect on fish ecology. So, Jason, how did you get interested in science when you were uh, in high school, say, or college? I've always kind of really been interested in science as a, as a kid. I really enjoyed reading science um, textbooks, and it was, it was one of my favorite subjects. And I just decided to stick with it. And I I majored as a as a biology student. And what uh, about it appealed to you when you were young? It was like it was the investigative process, I guess that that appealed to me it was just something that you can go out and observe and i i really like that that you can you can actually just go out and see how nature works and i was really fascinated by that so biology was sort of the entree and then as you went through high school and college yeah i majored in biology and i really enjoyed my ecology class just getting out out there and I, I wasn't too keen on the molecular side of biology, but the ecological part aspect it was it was really fun to get out there and observe things and and so was it field work then that led you to streams? Yeah, I actually worked as as an undergraduate, I worked with a professor of mine, and he would take me out into uh, streams in Southern California, and it was quite a great experience for me. And what sort of work and studies research was he doing? He was he was doing uh, population uh, studies of endangered and threatened fish in Southern California. So when you're in the lab, what sort of data are you gathering? So, for instance, with the leaf litter bags and the algal production, um, when we come back from the field, we have to process those samples. So 
we deploy tiles and we have to scrape off the algae from the tiles and then we have to run an analysis to quantify chlorophyll production. With the leaf litter bags that we set out, we bring them back and we we weigh the leaves in them and quantify how much leaf litter mass has been lost across time. What is it about the algae that you want to know in the river? With both the algae and the leaf litter, we want to see how um, the stream drying affects, say, algal productivity or leaf litter decomposition. So we want to see how much how much algal productivity there is in the early part of the summer when when the stream is still pretty connected. And then, again, we want to track that change over time to see how productivity changes as the stream gets drier and drier. And with the leaf uh, decomposition, same thing. Yeah, You're seeing thing. it over the, over the time. Yeah, we want to see how decomposition rates change as the stream gets drier. And with that, we're finding that decomposition rates slow down quite a bit as the stream dries. There's less microbial activity, less insect fauna to shred up the leaves. Are there other key data points that you're collecting out of the stream? Yeah, so I'm trying to measure the volume of water in the creek, mostly the volume of water in between the pools, the the fast-flowing portions called riffles. I try to measure how much water is in these portions, and I go out pretty much every week and measure the dimensions of the riffles, and I'm able to get volume on every week, and I'm able to quantify how this volume gets smaller and smaller every week. Eventually, these these pools are isolated, and there's no more flow exactly. between pools. Yeah, the the riffles just most of them completely dry up by the end of the summer. And, and so the fish are then isolated in these. Yeah, they're isolated; they aren't able to move among the different pools. At this point, is it too soon in your study to to reflect on what you might conclude? Well, I'm I'm already seeing some pretty drastic interannual variation in precipitation in the area, so. As I mentioned earlier, 2009 was a very dry. And that was your first year? Yeah, 2009 was a very dry year. So I noticed that there was quite a bit of uh, mortality for the fishes. Uh, This past year, 2010, uh, during that summer, was a lot wetter. There was a lot more habitat for the fish. Uh, Survival was a lot higher. So I'm already seeing uh, some significant results in terms of interannual variation and how more extreme temperatures and extreme drying might influence the fish population. Is there any part of water quality that you're measuring? Temperature and uh, dissolved oxygen levels, not in terms of pollution really, but uh, temperature and and dissolved oxygen are, are really key for salmonid species in particular. They require cool temperatures that are pretty well oxygenated. The information that you're getting from your study will have an impact on other streams and creek management? Potentially, yeah. That's that's my hope, that especially in certain areas where water withdrawals occur and there needs to be a certain amount of, of water, hopefully our findings can maybe influence these areas where water withdrawals occur and the stream becomes even more dry than they typically should naturally. Jason, thanks very much for coming in and talking about your research yeah, with thank us. You. 
particular feature of Spectrum is to mention a few of the science and technology events happening locally over the next few weeks. Joining me this week to bring you the calendar is Rick Garneski. In 1848, gold was discovered in the Sierra Nevada mountains, luring people by the thousands to California. Join Ranger Tammy on Saturday, August 13th from 11 to noon to find out how this event changed the San Francisco Bay forever at the Bay Model Visitor Center in Sausalito. This is a free event. On Saturday, August 13th, at 4.30 p.m., Christopher DiCarlo will present How to Be a Really Good Pain in the Ass, A Critical Thinker's Guide to Asking the Right Questions, at Kell's Iris Pub, 530 Jackson Street, San Francisco. Visit reasonforreason.org for more info. That's R-E-A-S-O-N, the number four, R-E-A-S-O-N dot O-R-G. The Science at Cal Lecture Series for August will be presented by Dr. Willie Michelson and is entitled Nanotechnology Enabling Environmental Monitoring. Dr. Michelson is the Executive Director of the Center of Integrated Nanomechanical Systems, known as COINS, a nanoscale science and engineering center headquartered at UC Berkeley dedicated to enabling and realizing novel environmental monitoring applications using nanotechnology. The date of the lecture is Saturday, August 20th at 11 a.m., in the Genetics and Plant Biology Building, Room 100. August 17th's Nerd Night takes place at the Rickshaw Stop, 155 Fell Street at Van Ness in San Francisco, from 7.30 to 10 p.m. At this $8 all-ages show, you will hear talks about winery building, a virtual reality chocolate factory, and neutrophils, one of the first immune cells to reach infection sites. Be there and be square. Visit sf.nerdnight.com. That's sf.nerd. N-I-T-E dot C-O-M. Nightlife takes place Thursday nights from 6 p.m. to 10 p.m. at the California Academy of Sciences in San Francisco's Golden Gate Park. It is 21 and over and features music, cocktails, and exhibits centered around a theme. In addition, the regular exhibits such as the Rainforest and Planetarium will be open. August 25th's Nightlife is on dinosaurs. Paleolab will present a fossil show and tell featuring trilobites, coprolites, a.k.a. fossilized dino poop, and other amazing finds that are 65 to 500 million years old. Check out additional specimens from the Academy's research collections, and a dino burlesque show. The planetarium will feature cosmic collisions, a full-dome show depicting the hypersonic impacts that drive the evolution of the universe, including a recreation of the meteorite impact that hastened the end of the age of dinosaurs 65 million years ago, clearing the way for mammals like us to thrive. Admission is $12. For more info and for tickets, visit www.calacademy.org. That's www.calacademy.org. And now several news stories. This item from the Inside Science News Service... Scientists battle the dramatic declines of honeybee colonies with targeted breeding. There are a handful of pests and diseases that individually and in combination are causing unprecedented mortality in honeybee colonies in Europe and North America. Serious efforts are being made to find solutions that can eradicate the pests and diseases. While the search for a solution continues, Researchers in Canada and the United States are attempting to breed bees that are resistant to mites and viruses that attack bee colonies. The breeding process exposes the queens to high levels of what is termed disease pressure, according to Rob Curie, 
professor of entomology at the University of Manitoba. The survivors are then bred next season and so on. Seven generations have been bred so far. We are looking for bees that are resistant to mites and with a greater tolerance to viruses because they appear to be the two main factors behind colony loss, Curie said. An added breeding attribute pursued by the Canadian breeders is the ability to withstand the brutal North American winters. Curie said that normally only 46% of the species known as European honeybees survive the Canadian winter, but the newest generations have a 75% survival rate. The total losses from managed honeybee colonies in the United States were 30% from all causes for the 2010-2011 winter, according to the annual survey conducted by the U.S. Department of Agriculture and the Apiary Inspectors of America. This is roughly similar to the losses reported in similar surveys done in the four previous years. This story from Metapage Today, lab-grown trachea implanted in patient, June 9, 2011, at the Karolinska University Hospital in Hudding, Stockholm, Sweden, Dr. Paolo Macchiarini implanted the first-ever bio-artificial trachea grown on a synthetic substrate using the patient's own stem cells. The patient was a 36-year-old cancer patient. For this procedure, Dr. Macchiarini and his colleagues collected stem cells from the patient who had late-stage tracheal cancer. Since no suitable donor windpipe was available, the researchers used a nanocomposite tracheal scaffold designed and built by Alexander Cephalian, Ph.D., of the University College, London. They seeded the polymer model with autologous stem cells. These are blood-forming stem cells and grew them for two days in a bioreactor. Dr. Macchiarini says there's no room for rejection because the cells are the patient's own. Thus, there is no need for him to be on immunosuppressive drugs. The music heard during the show is by Lestana David from his album Folk and Acoustic, made available through a Creative Commons license 3.0 attribution. Assistance provided by Judith White Marcellini. Production assistance provided by Rick Karneski. Thank you for listening to Spectrum. We are happy to hear from our listeners. If you have comments about the show, please send them to us via email. Email address is spectrum.kalx at yahoo.com. Join us in two weeks at this same time. <laughs>